Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.10 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Do want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Uh, two guests for the 10.30 a.m. show, uh, members of Congress from Minnesota, Democrat Betty McCollum, who's on the House Appropriations Committee, and also Republican Congressman Tom Emmer, uh, who has a very senior position with the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee. He is actually the chair of that committee. Is a very influential post within the Republican Party. And we'll be talking about the shutdown because it was yesterday that the president said that this shutdown could last months, even years. With us right now, the one and only Professor Stephen Shear, uh, retired from Carleton College, but still very much writing and very much active in terms of political analysis. Steve Shear, months, years, I mean, what is going on? <laughs> Well, uh, first of all, I think we have to say that our president has a tendency to exaggerate. Right. And with, this is a long-standing tendency. I'm writing a chapter about his career as a celebrity, and oh my, <laughs> this goes way back, Esme. So yes. when he says years, I think that is that is frankly impossible. Uh, let's think about uh, the actual uh, uh, consequences of the shutdown. On January 11th, uh, all those government employees who are working because they are vital and can't be laid off will not get a paycheck. At the end of the month, food stamps will run out of money. Uh, when you look at those sorts of problems, uh, I think that really does encourage some sort of agreement right. sooner rather than years later. Right. Well, it you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that the president seemed to be on board for a compromise. This is, you know, in, the, in sort of mid-December mm -hmm. to, to, to keep like a, do a stopgap measure. And everybody seemed to think he would do it. And he got backlash from his base. Right. And he drew the hard line in the sand. And then you had that that infamous meeting with uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer in the Oval Office that w all went down on, on videotape. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and Pelosi, I thought, was almost masterful in, in a, attempting to goad him into, you know, taking ownership of the shutdown. And he said, famously, I, I'll be proud to shut down the government right. uh, over border security. Uh, it, it seems like he's drawn a, a, a firm line in the sand. Mitch McConnell saying, I'm not even going to talk about this because it's, you know, the president's not on board. I mean, how long can this go? Well, uh, yeah, as you said, the Senate passed, this is a Republican Senate, passed a uh, stopgap funding measure that would have funded the government until February 8th. And uh, uh, it looked as if the president was going to sign it, and then boom, he's not going to sign it. And then he's had his public histrionic since then. Mitch McConnell said, I am not doing anything until I get a sign-off from the president before we begin in the Senate. 
So uh, it all depends on what can be done between the new Democratic leaders and and Trump. Now, one thing the Trump White House is is actually enjoying in all this, Esme, is that they're really raining on the Democrats' parade. That is, you know, you have a new Democratic uh, majority in the House. They passed the governmental ethics legislation. They passed the short-term spending uh, uh, proposal. Uh, but all that tends to uh, fade uh, next to the uh, uh, high drama of the shutdown. And in and, and part, I think Trump and his White House likes that. Uh, but as, you, as you've suggested, the longer this goes on, uh, the more the real consequences mount, and it's going to be a real problem for the president. Right. And, and, and you know, obviously – the concerns about this and the concerns about this, some of the things that you talked about and the consequences are, are, are bleeding into some of the volatility in, in the stock markets and then the markets in general. And, and that is something apparently that, that the president has, has really loved the fact that, that for much of his presidency, certainly uh, up until about September, October, the, the stock market was on a record roll and he loved to take credit for that. He seems particularly sensitive, though, to the volatility in the markets. And you would think that, that perhaps that would goad him into perhaps some kind of a compromise. Well, I think eventually, yes, the accumulation of external circumstances are going to move uh, the president towards a compromise. And he will argue that he fought as hard as he could to satisfy his base, and now, uh, you know, the government must function. That's my guess as to how it works out. But, you know, this is a fellow um, uh, who uh, is very unconventional in the way he governs. There was a very interesting television interview with Nancy Pelosi's daughter, the filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi. And she was saying, you know, the Washington rule book is you need to make friends in order to work with other people and get something done. And this president has burned up, torched that rule book. (laughs) Right. But, but, you know, and at each at each kind of turn, he he somehow has, you know, survived. I mean, he's he's he, you know, really. In a lot of ways, each time, and and this is this has gone on. You you obviously have done a lot of research into, into you know, Donald Trump. But at, at, at every turn, going back to the campaign, where he seemed like he was done, or he seemed like he he just made this grievous error. Going back to, I mean, you know, the comments about John McCain not being a hero yeah. and all of those things. He 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 was continuously able to survive. Right. But I think uh, the key point here is empirical consequences, what really happens to people. And um, uh, a couple things. First of all, being president puts you in uh, front and center for a lot of citizens. And his standard operating procedure, you know, is very aggressive and very self-promotional. And I think this is a president who's gotten into more people's heads and further into their heads than most presidents do. And that works with some people, but it really repels other people. And I think that's also a problem with governing in Washington. Right. Is it, and you know, you're, you're somebody who's studied the presidency. I mean, is there any sort of parallel, you know, or historical precedent for, for the, the Trump-like presidency? Or is this really completely breaking the mold? Well, no, I think the closest parallel goes way, way back to uh, 1828 and the election of Andrew Jackson. After all, remember, Trump has said that he really admires Jackson. He's put Jackson's portrait in the White House. 
uh, I think, in the Oval Office. Uh, Jackson uh, was a very unvarnished fellow who uh, engaged in multiple duels in his life and had uh, a lot of uh, bullets in his body as he governed as president. Uh, he was uh, prone to a big temper and to uh, vituperation. Uh, that's about as close as we can come to Trump, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, it, it's and, and it, you're right. He is that. That's the portrait he chose for. I think in the Oval Office yeah. to, to have um, Andrew Jackson there. Listen, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I do want to ask you about this new dynamic Democratic, younger, more diverse House, uh, including uh, Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. Uh, I want to ask you about the impact of uh, uh, Alexandria Octavia. Uh, uh, Cortez in in, in uh, New York, uh, but also there was another representative, uh, one of this new group of young representatives, who uh, uttered a, an obscenity as she talked about trying to or wanting to impeach the president. Uh, so I'd like to get your take on that. Let's take a quick break. You are listening to News Talk eight three zero. It's A21, Esme Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear. Uh, what, what, what is your take of, of this new, young, diverse House and some of these members that seem to be writing their own rule books, like Alexandria yes. Octavio Cortez, uh, like Ilhan Omar, uh, and like uh, Rashida Tlaib, who was the uh, Michigan representative who uttered a profanity saying she wanted to work on impeaching the president, uh, something that's sort of gone viral. Uh, is this sort of a, a different group here? And, and what impact do you think they'll have? Well, I think it's a problem for Nancy Pelosi, frankly, because what may be emerging in the Democratic caucus in the U.S. House is what has already emerged in the Republican caucus. In the Republican caucus, there's a hard right group. Uh, that has been uh, consistently a problem for the party leadership. And they're formally organized, the Freedom Caucus, they're called. Jim Jordan is their head. And uh, what we may be seeing now, there is a progressive caucus in the U.S. House of Democrats. And uh, with this uh, with this differing agenda and differing rhetorical style, uh, you may be getting uh, divisions within the Democratic caucus of the sort we saw in the Republican caucus to produce big problems for party leaders. And in terms of, of this you know, threat to impeach, and obviously this is kind of brewing out there, and with a democratically controlled House, mm-hmm. some of these committees will have subpoena power. Oh, yes. Where, you know, and I, I know you, you were you know, a student of history, where does this really stand right now? Um, and is this something that you think is potentially something that, that could in fact happen? Well, um, let's start first of all with subpoenas. Uh, subpoenas will be happening. There'll be a, a cannonade of subpoenas and there'll be investigations. Uh, unless there's something dramatic that we don't know about, a lot of these investigations really don't have long-term electoral impacts. 
Now, as for impeachment, we've already had the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, say that she doesn't believe in pursuing that at this point, um, uh, whereas uh, some of her progressive members want to impeach uh, uh, Trump now. Uh, so there's that sort of division brewing as well. You need a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, it would have to pass through the House Judiciary Committee. Now, it's important to note that Jerry Nadler of Manhattan, who is the Democratic chair of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, has long been an opponent of Trump's in New York regarding development projects going all the way back to the 1980s. So they have known each other, Trump and Nadler, and they have a great dislike for each other. Uh, so Nadler has talked about impeachment, but not in an actionable way, at least in the short term. But he has, there is certainly no love lost between Jerry Nadler and uh, Donald Trump. In terms of, of the par- parallels of, you know, the Nixon scandal, obviously President Clinton uh, w- was impeached. Are there, is there enough there or is it just a matter of um, or, or will another shoe have to drop with the Mueller investigation to really get this off the ground? Yeah, I, it, it, well – I don't think it gets off the ground without the majority party leadership at least facilitating it. And they're not doing that now. It's hands-off for them. And I think everyone's waiting to see what uh, Mueller comes up with and whether it can approach the level of a high crime or misdemeanor. I mean, you have to remember, Nixon was engaged in a criminal conspiracy to obstruct justice as president, and that was verified by audio tapes. Uh, There's a lot lot of evidence, yeah. Yeah, we don't have anything like this yet for Trump. Well, except that, 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 you know, in the indictment of Michael Cohen, one of the indictments of Michael Cohen, there was stated by prosecutors that that Michael Cohen acted on the direction of uh, the president or the then-candidate Donald Trump for these payments, hush money payments. The reason you're not hearing much about that is because uh, uh, other – other candidates in the past have been tried for similar campaign finance uh, uh, uses uh, uses of campaign money. John Edwards. John Edwards, yes. Yeah. And uh, the jury did not convict them. Right. Uh, so we don't have a record of a convictable crime. Now, what Cohen did was plead guilty to a crime that he could probably beaten in court because he wanted to get a better sentence. <laughs> it didn't end up working that way either. So uh, uh, the crime that uh, Cohen pled guilty to has never been litigated in court when a similar crime was tri- was litigated by John Edwards the jury did not convict so you see it's very murky right and that was actually a, a, a striking parallel because it was money that went to his mistress exactly his, his mistress that he had a secret affair with and and you know f- there was a child that was born and for you know, he tried to pass it off as the child of one of his staffers. Right. Uh, so there's all that. Plus, it was explicitly campaign money. And Trump's it was, this was Trump's money, but it wasn't explicitly campaign money used in the payoff. Right. So, so, so. You, you, you don't think – I mean, and, and I've seen a lot of people refer to the Edwards situation. You think that content and that issue in and of itself is, is not enough, that it doesn't rise to, to the Nixonian – well, no, because Level. I think if it did, you would hear a lot of Democrats uh, pressing the issue, and you're not. 
Right. In terms of uh, the United States Senate, which obviously is in Republican hands, it sounds like going back to this issue of the shutdown, it sounds like there are fractures emerging oh, yeah. there. I mean, is that enough to push the president over or, or he certainly has been not shy about doing things on his own? Mm-hmm. Um, is that enough, do you think, to maybe get him to bend? Well, the main problem for uh, Republicans who want to buck the president in the Senate is that Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, has a strong control over the Senate agenda and what proceeds. And uh, he will certainly be trying to impede any sort of effort of that sort uh, uh, as long as the shutdown is occurring. you know, at this point, it's just talk. It's not clear it can be translated into a Senate action that, along with okay. the House, could lead to a confrontation with the president. But what do you think about, you know, certainly the House candidates that ended up losing their seats uh, in the November election, including Congressman Eric Paulson, tended to be Republicans who weren't openly supportive of the president. In fact, we're often critical of the president. And the message there seemed to be, this is Donald Trump's Republican Party, and you better stand in line with Donald Trump. Is there that, I mean, was that, do you think that's a message that came out of this? Uh, Or 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 not? Well, I think within the Republican Party, it's pretty hard to put together an anti-Trump movement. So I think within the Republican Party, what you've said is accurate. But within the broader electorate, it's not at all clear that uh, being with Donald Trump is a majority position. And I think a lot of defeated Republicans would uh, would agree with that statement. Eric Paulson being one of them. Right. Well, then let me ask you about Mitt Romney, who is now a senator from Utah who wrote a scathing op-ed criticizing the character of the president. And the president fired back saying, I won the presidency. You didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he said he won big. Some people pointed out that actually I think Mitt Romney got more votes (laughs) than the president. But that that still doesn't matter. You know, it's it's, um, you know, Donald Trump won. Mitt Romney didn't. What I mean. That was definitely a shot across the bow. Yeah. I mean, is that – I mean, do you think somebody like a Mitt Romney is going to emerge to challenge the president? No, but what I think Romney is trying to do, and he may be successful in this, is find a way to really affect the behavior of the president. Uh, if important Republicans in the Senate and uh, begin to publicly criticize and demand different sorts of behavior – uh, Trump will pay attention to that because he knows that that's an important part of his institutional base that he has to keep on his side. And I think Romney knew that, and I think that's one reason Romney put that out there. He's sort of saying, look, Mr. President, you can't count on us to go to the mat for you when you're acting unreasonably. And I think that'll get Trump's attention over time. Okay. All right. Well, I, obviously, um, it'll be interesting to see <laughs> how, how that develops. Well, listen, we do have to take a break. I want to give you some weather. And then when we come back, we want to talk about uh, the incoming governor, the governor-elect, Tim Walls, who will be the governor of the state of Minnesota, He'll be sworn in on Monday, and the new legislature that is coming in, and, and what might get done or what might not get done at the state capitol. Uh, we're chatting with Professor Stephen Shear. Keep it right here on News Talk 830. We'll come back with some weather.
It's 8.36 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College uh, talking about shifting gears here, talking about uh, the new governor. Tim Walls will become the governor of Minnesota on Monday. He'll be sworn in. And there is a divided legislature. Uh, of course, the House became a democratically controlled House. The Minnesota Senate is very narrowly a Republican Senate, and I'm talking very narrow. And actually, Steve Shear, I, I this find this just amazing. This is the, apparently the only divided legislature in the country. Yeah, the only divided state legislature. State state legislature. Yeah. I, I, I that that just is, sort of blows me away. Yeah. Well, it's a fact. It's a it's a result of the Senate being elected in four year terms, so they were not really up. Only one Senate seat was up. Uh, uh, Michelle Fishbach's vacated seat uh, this last November. So the Democratic wave of last November does not affect the Senate. The Senate is not up again till 2020. Right. So what what do you think will be? Because I mean, th- these sessions in, at the Capitol in the past few years have been just marred by you know fighting and you know even even a bill that was um, would have would have put the Minnesota state taxes laws in conformity with yeah. the federal law uh, was vetoed by the governor. So now you've got two sets of taxes that I think is, we talked about this earlier with uh, another guest. It's going to be kind of a mess for a lot of people. Yep. Um, what, what, what do you think – and the you know, governor like Walls is talking about some pretty bold initiatives. He's talking about a gas tax. He's talking about legalizing marijuana. Uh, what, what is your take on what lies ahead here at the state legislature? Well, a couple things. Uh, the two things to watch, I think, politically are, first of all, the internal unity of the uh, State House Democrats uh, under uh, Melissa Hortman, the uh, new Speaker of the House. Uh, will, uh, you know, a, a lot of new suburban members uh, are in, and they are probably more moderate than some of the hardcore progressives. I'm not certain that uh, a really winning issue in the Twin Cities suburb is legal pot, for right. example. And I think Hortman knows that, and that, that that may produce divisions within her own caucus. And there may be that problem with tax increases as well with the new suburban representatives. So you have to watch and see what happens within the House caucus, Democratic caucus. Then the other thing to watch is the a very narrow majority caucus by one seat uh, of the Senate Republicans. Uh, I'm certain that the governor will be trying to pick off a Republican senator or two for a gas tax increase for renewing the medical providers tax, which is set to expire, uh, perhaps for legalizing marijuana and for other initiatives, an infrastructure package for uh, for roads and bridges. Um, can any Republicans be picked off? And I, let me mention a name of one Republican senator who might be be available for such persuasion, and that's Jim Abler, uh, a suburban Republican, who was one of the override six who overrode Tim Pawlenty's uh, veto of a, a gas tax increase uh, in 2008 um, and produced the last... Uh, time we had a, a gas tax increase. Uh, he has also suggested publicly an alternative way to uh, t- increase taxes to make up for the expiring medical device or medical providers tax. 
So uh, Abler may be available for some tax increases, but the problem for someone like Abler is going back to your Republican activist home and saying, hey, I raised your taxes. Good luck uh, selling that to the partisan faithful. Right. <laughs> and and, and that, that that area is is the core of Republican strength yeah. in, in, in the state of Minnesota, certainly the heart of the 6th Congressional District. Uh, in terms of, though, you know, Governor-elect Walls, uh, you know, he won decisively, and, and mm-hmm. I've, I've interviewed him, and he, and actually, I'll be, I'll be interviewing him again tomorrow. Uh, he, he really believes that he's got a mandate, and he made it very clear that he was running, you know, on a gas tax. He didn't shy away from that. Uh, he really believes that he's got a mandate to do something. Uh, I also think that that he feels very strongly that he has a mandate to do some kind of gun control legislation. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but of course the question is, what will legislators want to do? Um, mandates are often overinterpreted by winners, and they find out the hard way that they don't exist, and that may happen to the governor, it may not, but uh, the fact is he doesn't have the votes right now in the state senate, and Republicans in the state senate, uh, uh, you know, stung from the last election, if you uh, are perhaps not as willing to uh, uh, compromise with him as he would wish, I think you can already get a suggestion of that in the public statements of Senate Majority Leader uh, Paul Kozelka, who has basically said no to uh, several of the major initiatives uh, that In terms of the personalities, it, it seems like you know a number of the problems that we've had in recent years have resulted in, in strong, to say the least, personality clashes between the governor and especially I think the House Speaker, Kurt Dowd. Yes. It, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also there were problems with the, with the DFL Senate Majority Leader. Uh, do you think that, that it's going to be different or that will that sort of thing – well, well, I think Tim Waltz is going to put a premium on developing working relationships yeah. uh, to the extent that he can with these other leaders. Uh, you know, uh, Governor Dayton uh, basically uh, withdrew from conflict uh, rather than trying to work out differences, uh, particularly late in his second term. And I, Waltz, as a new governor with an agenda and an ambitious vision for the state, will want to try and accomplish things and be much more, I think, engaged than uh, Governor Dayton was at the end of his second term. Right. And, and in terms of – and, and that, that's certainly what um, you know, Governor like Tim Walls has said that he wants to do as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, it will be interesting though you know, just to see how fragile that coalition will be or the, how fragile that majority is in the Senate and they're all facing election here in a couple of years. Right. And they've got to be a little nervous right now. Right. Well, and of course, this is a budget session and you're talking about over 50 billion in spending. And so, even though we have a surplus of 1.5 billion, that's less than 2% of the state budget and most of that will be eaten up by inflation in any event. Uh so uh how will the money be allocated in the governor's plan? We'll find that out in February. It's a huge agenda item to work out. And the reason it's so complex right now, Esme, is that he has made so many promises about so many areas, you know, more education spending, more health spending, more infrastructure spending, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
where's the revenue come from, and uh, how do you propose to uh, increase spending uh, and still balance the budget? It really requires him to uh, get very serious about spending priorities, and we just don't know what those decisions are right. going to be yet. And, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, the gas tax proposal, what he's talking about is about a billion dollars he wants to raise, and that's factored – and you factor that out, it's about a 10-cent increase. Yeah. And that's – but that, again, it's something that he did campaign on, and people knew that he advocated that, and he did have a solid win. Uh, it's interesting, though, that you, you, what you said about people overplaying their con- well, yeah, their view I mean, of consensus. You know, Tim Waltz won statewide, and uh, I'm not. But you know, the polling that I saw from Survey USA and KSTP that fall showed the gas tax was unpopular. Right. So you can win with an unpopular position that people are not paying uh, careful attention to. Uh, but then when you put that to the top of the agenda, the whole politics of the situation changes, particularly when you have new suburban members elected in the House uh, whose uh, constituents are driving every day and are quite aware of the price of gasoline. There you go. All right. Well, listen, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to get your take on on Mark Dayton's legacy, uh, governor, obviously, for eight years. We'll talk about that next on News Talk 830. But first, let's take a quick break. All right. It's 849 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear. Your thoughts on Mark Dayton's legacy? Well, I would say that one area where uh, he had a big impact was in education policy and that his main impact uh, in terms of public policy occurred in uh, in uh, uh, after the election of a uh, a democratic legislature in 2012 he was able to in 2013 get all-day kindergarten funded across the state. That was a big thing. And also expanded pre-K uh, programs uh, to the point where thousands of students are now taking pre-K uh, in a way that they didn't before. So I think there's that uh, legislatively. Uh, also, uh, during that time, uh, the state was a pioneer in legalizing gay marriage. And I think he'll look back on that as being a pioneer in that regard. Uh, the other thing to note that often goes unremarked about a governor, and particularly a two-term governor, is the way you can reshape the state judiciary and the state Supreme Court with your appointments. And he's been able to move it in a more liberal and progressive direction in a way that will last for a considerable period of time. And that trend will also continue, I think, under the next governor, Tim Walz. Right. Um, and in terms of two-term governors, I mean, Minnesota does have a history of having two-term governors with the exception, really, I guess, most recently of Jesse Ventura. I mm-hmm. mean, it'll be interesting to see if, if Tim Walls can, you know, add to that, continue that tradition. And certainly, I mean, what we saw in this election is once again, in a state that, that really has Donald Trump nearly won, still nobody getting elected to a statewide office as a Republican since yeah. Tim Bolenti in 2006, which is just it's, it's extraordinary to me. It's 12 years. Uh, it's 12 years now, and uh, I think it just reflects the fact that the state party is not competitive statewide in the candidates they select, in the resources they can devote to those candidates, and.
and in the agendas that they are presenting to the Minnesota public. Uh, all three problems are significant problems, and they all beset the Republican Party in the state right now. And it also does not look like there's an immediate turnaround in the offing. So if I were Tim Waltz, I would consider the possibility of eight years to be a good possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes, certainly, and I'm sure I'm sure he's looking at that. But I, I agree with you. I do I do think that that the, the number one um, legacy I, I think is is that all day kindergarten bill, and and you know it's remarkable during the debate for the over that how controversial it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then the next year when it became law, I think ninety. Two percent or five percent. I mean, it was some astronomical figure uh, of the percentage of families that were taking advantage of it. Right. Was so overwhelmingly high, and uh, you know, I've actually done. It's been a couple of years, but I should revisit this story. You know, talking to, I did a story visiting first grade teachers mm-hmm. after this had been in place for I think about a year or two, mm-hmm. and they said the, the contrast was startling. Yeah, to, to have to have a group of kids that had all gone through all day kindergarten. It's, it's still voluntary, but they said, you know, it really they were better prepared for first grade. Right, as you said, it's voluntary, but just about everybody's volunteering their kids for it. Uh, it and we'll see over the long term uh, how this affects student performance and also educational disparities in the state, which remain very problematic and among the worst in the nation. So there's a lot of work yet to be done on this. But now that it's passed as may, I think it's here to stay. Oh, absolutely. And and I do think that eventually, you know, Dayton was frustrated in getting a universal pre-K law passed. That's something he didn't quite achieve. But he, as you said, he, he certainly the access and expansion of access to right. uh, all to pre-K is, is something that is part of his legacy as well. I, I, I just see that as happening eventually. I, yeah, I don't know if it's... And Tim Waltz is for that, but again, the question, uh, the, the big question with this budget is what are your what are your top priorities, because that's where you have to put the money, and what are you going to uh, wait on and hope to spend on later, and we just don't know that yet. Right, and, and you know, it, I think that there is there does seem to be some kind of consensus for some kind of major allocation for infrastructure. Yeah. And and it's something that I think did in, um, you know, over in Wisconsin. I think that was a factor in the governor's race there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think um, it, it'll be interesting to see that as well. And I think your, your judiciary points are really well taken because that's something that, you know, you, you think about it so much at the federal level with the president's appointments, which really will, will last for generations, mm-hmm. you know, but it's something that, that obviously is going to have an impact here as well. Um, but I, I, I do I do agree with you. I think that those are some of his uh, definite legacies and uh, certainly the one on education is normal. It, it's difficult to understand why that was controversial <laughs> now when you see how popular it is and how yeah, yeah, people exactly. take advantage of it. Well, listen, uh, Professor Stephen Chair, I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining me at this hour. Always a pleasure. Well, there's a lot happening right now. I know. (laughs) There certainly is. All right. Well, take care. Thank you so much Uh again. Bye-bye. All right. Absolutely. That's Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. Always great to talk to him. Uh, Well, folks, um, winding down here, I do want to give a shout-out to the producers of this show, David Josephson, Organizing the lineup here, even uh, stepping in when somebody was not able to make it. So I appreciate David 
always doing a great job. And then also uh, producers Jonathan Lowe and Shaletta Brundage. Great to be back and see everybody again. You know, I mean, it's, I feel like it's been weeks and weeks and weeks because it has been weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, anyway, so it's great to be back. Great to be back with everyone here on News Radio 830 WCCO. And also, I uh, want to invite you to tune in to WCCO TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Uh, Mike Augustinak will be there. A volatile week in weather, obviously super mild, but uh, the forecast calling for uh, some messy stuff tomorrow night. Uh, mixed precip, uh, snow, possibly rain. And then uh, in the middle of the week, man, oh, man, oh, man. Uh, very, very cold. So... Michael will have the update. And then at 10.30 a.m., I'll be joined by two very prominent members of the Minnesota congressional delegations, two of the more senior members, Democrat Betty McCollum and also uh, Republican Tom Emmer to get the latest on this government shutdown. Uh, we'll need to figure out where the talks are. I know they're meeting in Washington. Perhaps those two will have insights. So keep it here, folks. News Talk 830 WCCO. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.